riding along in my rig. I am feeling kind of easy. Got no Hello everyone and welcome back to the Criterion Collectors. I'm your co-host Tim Rosenberger. And I'm your co-host Rosalie Lewis. And today we're going to be talking about the Road Trilogy. Um, I know uh, last uh, month we said that we were hoping to talk about uh, some queer cinema. We were having some trouble uh, booking a guest. Uh, We're trying to work that out. So until we can get that worked out, we're going to push that back. We may have to take off the schedule for the foreseeable future. I hope we don't have to do that, but we may have to. Um, But hopefully we can get somebody in and uh, we can get that in for June, which is Pride Month, which will be um, pretty fitting for that. But until then, uh, if we can't get that done, we'll just uh, rearrange the schedule a little bit. Today we're going to talk about the Road Trilogy, which is a series of films by German filmmaker Vin Wenders. There are a series of films that were made from 1974 um, to 1976, um, one year after the other. If you can tell, they are all road movies. And they all star um, German actor Rudger Vogler. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Who stars as various characters uh, throughout each of the films. In the first one, which is called um, Alice in the Cities from 1974, he stars as uh, Philip Winter, a West German writer. Keep in mind, this is the 1970s, so uh, the wall's still up and there's West Germany and East Germany. He is... uh, driving through the United States for a story about the American landscape. After that trip is kind of over and not terribly successful, he is trying to get back to uh, West Germany where he will finish the story for his, I guess, German publisher who's also trying to publish it, working with an American editor. Anyway, the closest flight is to Amsterdam due to a German strike that is going on at the time. And in his process of trying to get back, he runs into two fellow Germans, a mother and a daughter. And uh, he kind of, Philip kind of gets saddled with the little girl whose name is Alice, who's played by, and again, I'm probably going to butcher this name, apologies, Yeller Rotlander. The mother, who originally planned to go with them uh, to Amsterdam, stays behind so he can, I guess she can patch stuff up with a boyfriend she has in New York with the promise that she will meet up with them in a later flight to Amsterdam. She never turns up, so uh, Philip and Alice set out to find Alice's grandmother somewhere in kind of the West German area, but Alice can't quite remember where her grandmother lives, so um, they go on a quite a lengthy journey to find find her. And uh, during their travels, Philip and Alice uh, form uh, a bond with each other. Um, so uh, 
I was reading about this film and was in, was uh, interested in that. Apparently, um, initially, vendors and the cast had kind of a strict script, and then they kind of, as the filming went along, they um, started kind of being more loose with what they were doing and doing more improv and stuff like that. And I really like that they did that. It seems uh, all these films have kind of have well, maybe well, maybe not so much as wrong move, but but particularly Alice in the Cities and. And the third film we'll talk about have kind of a loose structure that I think works very well for them because it makes the whole experience that much more real and natural. Did you like that kind of uh, loosey-goosey feel to this film? I did. Um, I didn't know what to expect at all from this. And sometimes putting a kid in a movie can be a gamble. But Mm -hmm. I think, thankfully, Yellow Rotlander is a very naturalistic performer And she comes across as a super genuine little kid. She sometimes is moody and sometimes is funny. And, you know, she really is very genuine. And I loved that relationship between Alice and Philip, despite my initial, like, why would a mom ever leave her nine-year-old daughter with a strange man that she met yesterday? But that aside, um, I really... I really loved it. It doesn't have a ton of story to it, which I was kind of glad about because it was kind of just fun to follow them along on their journeys around first New York and then Amsterdam and then Germany. So I thought the looseness really worked for the film. Yeah, and but it does. Have, it still has a driving force for the film, which is, you know, the goal is to find uh, Alice's grandmother. So there's still, it's, it's, it's a loose, but it's thankfully not like meandering. Like I think some films like this can sometimes be, there's a definite goal in mind, which can drive everything forward. Yeah, and I liked the fact that it sort of had, like, each sort of destination or each place that they tried to look for Grandma, you know, had its own special little anecdotes and things about it that I think it was, in a way, it was a travelogue of West Germany, which, you know, at that time, Germany was divided into two um, countries, as you referenced earlier. So it's certainly interesting to see it from the historical perspective, as well as just, you know, getting to enjoy the different landscapes and the history. And at one point, they're in a town where they're talking about a lot of the old buildings being torn down. And Alice says it's like a graveyard for a house. And I thought that was so poignant. Um, and I'm sure it's even more true now that a lot of the landscapes and the things that we see in this movie may no longer be there. Yeah, and just kind of all these films are kind of, if you want to know what at least West Germany looked like in the nineteen mid-1970s, this is a good look at that. I was slightly disappointed because I think Criterion is a bit misleading in its description of these films in that it makes it sound like you see more of the American landscape than you actually do see, because you don't see very much of it. I mean, the only one that takes place in America at all is um, this one in its first whatever many minutes. So I was a bit disappointed because he does shoot landscape very well and I was hoping to see kind of a, uh, the American landscapes from his perspective but um, it is certainly nice to see you know another country's landscape because I've seen I've been to Germany but not uh, very much of it uh, mainly hung out in Dusseldorf so to see more of it was pretty nice did you were you expecting to see more of the American landscape than uh, was present in the film for old I films? Was. I'm not sure why I thought that um, I thought it all took place in America and then I was like oh it's subtitled I should have known um, <laughs> but at the same time i was uh amused by the character of philip um saying that basically everything outside of new york city looks exactly the same and it's (laughs) not 
even worth going to. And I'm sure that Benders doesn't feel that way because he's filmed a lot of things in America, including Paris, Texas, obviously. But yeah, I was expecting a little bit more of the typical American road trip movie, I guess. And uh, mm-hmm. it's not that. But I did enjoy seeing New York at that time. He goes to uh, Rockaway Beach. He's outside of Shea Stadium. We get to see him on the subway. And you know, they go to the Empire State Building. So that was really cool. I enjoyed seeing those little snippets. Yeah, the, what they you see of it is pretty nice. And he's kind of, the, and you know, the road and these kind of run down motel buildings and or uh, motels and stuff are nice to see. But um, I do like that Philip is, unlike the mother who is highly irresponsible and trusts his daughter with somebody whose only kind of qualification to watch her is that he can also speak German. Exactly. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's uh anyway it's, she's disturbing, but she's so yeah, yeah she's so she's so terrible but um but unlike her i do like the fact that philip is responsible and he's not um he does try to he doesn't just try to i mean while he is trying to get rid of this girl he's trying to do so in a responsible manner he isn't just trying to drop her off on the road and then just drive away he's trying to give her to somebody who's responsible whether it be the police or the grandmother or whoever so i enjoyed that i think most a lot of films like this they kind of deal with i don't know lost people because philip is kind of a lost person you know they tend to be fairly broken people who are responsible and stuff and then they meet somebody who you know they form a bond or they have to start taking care of and stuff the fact that philip is already while he is kind of broken in his own way he is the fact that he can be responsible is a kind of a nice change from what i think you normally see in these types of uh relationship films he's not only broken but he's broke right like that's why he's going back to germany ostensibly is because he had this assignment to write an article about american life and he didn't really do the job he just ended up taking a lot of pictures and now he has like 300 dollars left to his name so he's not only sustaining himself with this money and this unexpected trip but he's also having to sustain this little girl that's so dependent on him and he's not selfish about it. Like, he rents a car to drive them around so that they can see if they can find her grandmother. And he puts them up in hotels and he pays for her food because, you know, how is she going to survive otherwise? So I liked the unselfishness and the sympathetic kind of nature that he had toward her, even if it was sometimes begrudging. But it didn't really have that dynamic you see in a lot of road movies or even like kid adult movies where one of the companions is like annoyed that the other person is with them and they kind of break down that barrier over time. They kind of are on an even keel, even though they both have moments of frustration with one another, they both seem to genuinely also like each other. And I liked that. That was refreshing. Yeah. And their interactions are very, because they do have a parent child dynamic and there's a lot of little touches that kind of sell that. Like Alice, I think jokes that, you know, she, he hasn't been feeding her and he's, he's like, well, you know, you're, you only eat hot dogs anyway. Exactly. Uh, Every parent I've ever known. And then, um, (laughs) and then my wife and I laughed at, um, because lately our daughter has been getting up at like six in the morning and at one point they're staying at a woman they've befriended a woman and they're and the woman's letting philip and alice stay at her house overnight and uh, at one point alice just gets up uh, in the early morning and wakes philip up and philip just like looks at the clock and sees that it's like six like literally six in the morning and uh, he's just basically like why are you getting why are you up right now it's 6 a.m what is wrong with you so it's just little touches like that that 
show yeah. me that somebody involved, you know, had been a parent or knows people have been parents. And it's just, it's, you know, little touches that help sell the whole kind of thing. There's just a lot of really sweet moments, too. I liked when she was sort of looking through the Polaroids that he had taken, and then she wants to take one of him. So she takes it, and this is a really beautiful visual, too, you know, as the Polaroid of his portrait is developing, you see the reflection of himself in that picture. So it's like uh, almost like a double exposure, but intentionally, and it just looks so cool. And then there's another moment where they're on the plane and he takes a picture out the window. And then when it develops, she looks at it and she says, oh, I like it. It's so empty. And it's funny because he's just, you know, previously told her mother, this was back when they first met that, uh, you know, he's found his pictures don't really capture what he's looking for, the essence that he's looking for. It just feels empty. So I thought that was a cool little connection too. And then there's this game of Hangman that also stood out. And as I watched the other movies sort of foreshadow some other things that we'll talk about in the, the trilogy. But, you know, she says that it's cheating when the word is dream because she says you should only use real things. And I thought that was a really interesting remark by someone so young to already kind of think dreams aren't real. Yeah, it says a lot about her upbringing her life so far that this whatever 12 year old or how old or nine or however how old she is 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 thinking that and then uh, there's another good really sweet moment uh, near the end of the film where they're um kind of having fun just doing stuff on the road doing some exercises at a rest stop and then uh at one point they find a photo booth and they do some lot of cute photos and that and stuff and it's just yeah it's a very endearing just kind of lovely relationship i think this film out of all of the ones is um well one i think probably the lightest in tone and then also kind of just the most heartwarming of the three films it's definitely the most heartwarming the most charming i was smiling the whole way through i absolutely loved it even you know the moments where we're not really sure is she ever gonna find you know her family again it still doesn't feel dour or sad it just feels you know, like a, a charming and sweet movie about two somewhat lost souls that are, you know, forming this bond. Mm-hmm. I really liked it a lot. So one of the, I don't know if you've seen Paper Moon, but that's a movie that I love. And that's a movie I thought of when I was watching this because it's, a again, a movie about sort of a, a parent-child relationship on the road and, you know, a young girl with an older man. And then I was looking up more information about Alice in the Cities and apparently Vin Benders saw paper moon as he was in the process of filming Alice and he got worried that they were too similar. But, you know, I think those parallels are just natural when you're dealing with a young actor, especially the whole road thing, but they're different in tone because that one is more of a pure comedy. Plus it's got the con artist layer to it. It's a little bit more plot driven, but if you do like paper moon, I would say definitely check out Alice in the cities because they have a similar heart to them, and I really liked that. The other thing I wanted to mention is the music. I love the music in all three of these movies, but in this one, the music is by the Prout Rock band Can, and um, apparently they recorded, I should say, all in one day. They didn't have a ton of time to record the soundtrack for this movie, and so you know mm-hmm. they just recorded it all at once, and I think it sounds awesome. It really works well with the, with the movie, and um, I don't know how it came to be so quickly, but it's pretty impressive. And it's surprising that, you know, you have the music of Can, which is like this art rock band, and then you have stuff from like Chuck Berry and, you know, more um, mainstream artists throughout, but it all works together really well. And I think that even though it's a juxtaposition of different styles, it kind of shows the American influence that was seeping into Germany just as much as you see that in the characters. 
Yeah, you can see kind of a love for Vin Vendors and his kind of his love for Germany and then his love for kind of America and both cultures, like you said, do kind of combined in the film, um, especially in uh, the last film we'll talk about. You can see the American influence a lot. So, yeah, seeing the kind of juxtaposition of these two cultures together is kind of nice and says a lot about American culture at the time, but also what was happening to at least West German, uh, West Germany culture at that time as well. I thought it was very interesting too, that in this movie, you know, Vinter's talking about how he hates television, presumably probably American as well as German television, but we only see him really watching it in America. And he has this great monologue about how, you know, the reason he hates TV is because it's all this content that's chopped up to fit in ads, but then you realize like everything is really an advertisement for, you know, a lifestyle or whatever. And I, I really loved that monologue. And I felt like there's an echo of that, which we can talk about later in Kings of the Road with one of the characters talking about what movies have become. So it's interesting to hear that because I feel like that may not be, again, Vendor's opinion. He's just putting that in the mouth of one of the characters um, because he seems to love American culture and American pop culture specifically. But it was interesting to hear that critique because I'm sure there were people who felt that way that were more traditional. So next up in this loose trilogy is a movie that's translated as the wrong move or false movement if you're going more literal from German. And this one was filmed in 1975. And it also stars our familiar hero of Rudiger Vogler, as well as some more um, unfamiliar faces at the time. So uh, Natasha Kinski pops up. She is, this is her first film role and she was I think 12 or 13 at the time of filming. We do see Lisa Kreuzer again. Um, she's the one that was the mom in the previous movie. And in this one, she has a, a small role, but pivotal. And then we also see Hannah Shagula. I'm probably pronouncing that terribly wrong. Um, as Therese, who plays an actress. And Hans Black as an older gentleman named Lairds, who plays the harmonica. So basically, this is another movie where it's a man in his early 30s. In this case, we meet him when he's listening to the trogs and punching out the windows of his apartment. So he's definitely at an angsty moment in his life. And uh, his mother tells him he needs to go out and see the country because clearly he's at a dead end where he is. So she gives him a ticket to a place called Bonn and he gets on the train. And when he's on the train, he notices a beautiful woman um, in another train that he sees that's kind of crossing paths and the conductor is able to give him his, her phone number. They see each other. So those two are sort of destined to meet. And then in his own compartment, he also meets an older man, Lertz. And um, again, he's just kind of playing a harmonica, has a lot of nosebleeds, is generally a little odd and off-putting. And then the Natasha Kinski character, Mignon, is a mute girl who kind of does tricks. She does uh, juggling and acrobatics and things like that. And it turns out that she's a street performer. So it's a strange little trio. And those two don't have any money. So again, poor uh, Rudiger Vogler is on the hook for paying for somebody else 
that he wasn't planning on. But um, in this case, those two kind of latch on to him, and then they also meet up with the actress, and they form sort of a, a, a group of people that travels the countryside. This is a significantly darker, heavier film than um, Alice in the Cities, and probably a, a good reason for that is that the screenwriter, Peter Hanke, his mother committed suicide two years before this film was made, and so you sort of see a lot of depression and tropes about you know suicide or mortality that do creep up in this movie, and there's also a lot of things about you know the the past kind of haunting people. One of the characters we learn has a, a connection to the Holocaust. And there's also some some pretty dark and violent moments in this movie. So a little bit different than the previous one for sure. And maybe a little bit tougher for some folks to watch. Certainly not one that you're gonna throw on for the family on the, you know, on a Saturday afternoon. But I still found this one to be really resonant and I'm curious what your thoughts were. Uh I really hated it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, um, uh, okay, so, yes, it does have a much darker tone, which is kind of somewhat, dis- well, not disappointing, but it is, yes, it is different from Alice in the City, so if you're expecting Alice in the Cities for this film, don't go to that. Part of the problem, I mean, I have various problems we can discuss, I guess, throughout this, but um, one of my problems with this is that everybody in the movie acts very, very strangely and oddly from pretty much from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. I mean, it starts with no explanation of him just punching a window, and then I guess he's saying goodbye to his mother, and they act like they they want to see each other, but they don't know if they will see each other. We don't really know what she's doing. He gets on a train. He randomly meets this actress from Germany, and she just decides to meet up with him, even though she doesn't know him. And while he's on the train, this conductor just goes in to check on their tickets and he just randomly starts talking about his umbrella for no reason and then the girl just starts like invading the main character's personal space and then they go on this adventure together and then this one guy who hears the main character say a poem or something in a restaurant then starts following all the main characters pretends that he's not following them and then eventually he catches up with them and just says that he wants to read them a poem and it's just, it's so, I just found it so weird and just not like, I didn't, I just didn't feel like people would actually act like this or when they start talking about deep things that people would actually talk about deep things in that sort of manner. I guess it just felt, it just felt, it felt unlike Alice in the Seas, it felt very unnatural and just strange and not true to uh, life and kind of pretentious, I suppose. Yeah, it definitely goes the exact opposite direction of Alice in terms of naturalism. You're right. I feel like all of these characters are extremely, like, absurd, and it feels more like an exercise than something that would happen in real life. At the same time, there were things about it that I found funny, and maybe they're not supposed to be, or maybe it's supposed to be dark humor. Like, the guy you mentioned who sort of follows them around and then forces his poetry upon them, I just found that funny. Like, he was super annoying, but it was clear that all the other characters were also annoyed by him, but for some reason, like, he still tagged along. And I've definitely known people that are, like, oblivious to hints that might be like uh-huh. that. So I felt like that was a little bit relatable. And then there's a scene where the main character asks the actress character, like, have you ever had a compulsion for murder? And he talks about how when he was young, he had like a bloodlust and he says he can feel it coming back. And she's like, oh yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. 
And in that moment, I wasn't clear if he's talking about like the Holocaust Nazi man or <laughs> the annoying poetry guy. But it could have been either one. <laughs> I, that was kind of, I'll admit, that was kind of funny. But maybe because, uh, yes, my wife and I both found the guy just, the, the, the poetry guy kind of weird and annoying. And the fact that the, it becomes clear, especially by the end of the film, that the other characters didn't like him either was kind of humorous. And they're like, okay, he, he randomly disappears at one point and nobody seems to care. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a strange mix, though, of tones because you have stuff like that that I think is meant to be funny. But then you definitely have, like, a guy talking about his role as a perpetrator of the Holocaust and a 13 year old who's trying to come on to like 32 year old dude. Yeah, and it's highly implied that they, <laughs> yeah, and it's highly implied that they sleep together at one point. And you do, you do see her topless at one point and you don't see her, they don't do anything in terms of what they film, but it is implied later that they did actually. Yeah. And it's right. Kind of, it and does, I wasn't- on whether that was like him mistaking her for somebody else in the darkness or if he realized it at some point and then just went through with it anyway that was definitely uh off-putting yeah but i I do think it's meant to be i don't think ben benders is like a a huge weirdo perv or something like that i think it's meant to be off-putting but it still makes it it's like a I don't know. None of the characters are likable because all of them do these things, like you said, that are just so out of the ordinary or uncomfortable. Yeah, and they don't they don't have much sympathy for like at one point they go to um, this big house and that the poetry guy thinks he thinks it belongs to I think it's his uncle, but then they later find out that they're at the wrong house. And this guy comes down the stairs with a shotgun saying that he's glad that they're there because he was about to kill himself because his wife just committed suicide like three months before and he's really depressed and stuff. So they talk about him, talk to him through the night and stuff. And uh, his story does not have uh, a great, uh, a very happy ending. But the other characters don't really seem to care. They just seem to kind of go on with stuff after that. So, yeah, there's not tons of sympathy for the characters, which... I mean, for me, I think it's a bit of a problem. I don't think you have to necessarily like characters in a movie, but you do have to at least care what happens to them. I, and I didn't really care what happened to them or or um, or what they were talking about. Which I think if they were if they were talking about things in a more interesting manner, which I guess the subjects of what they're talking about aren't necessarily bad. It's just the way they were talking about them didn't really appeal to me. And if they did, I could probably put up with them being horrible people since I couldn't really get into what they were saying or at least how they were saying it. I guess the film didn't really work for me in that regard. The other thing that I feel is worth noting is that out of the three movies, this one is filmed in color. The other two are in black and white. Yes. And I do think that that affects not only the the way the movie looks, but just the tone of it because it does feel a lot more dated because it's in that, that color scheme and the colors don't really tell you anything emotionally where, you know, in a black and white film, I feel like sometimes that can lead you to feel one way or another. I just feel like black and white lends itself so much better to conveying certain emotions. I think having a do unlikely things, but have it feel more real world because it's set in color, that clash kind of creates an inner ambiguity that feels uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, it's interesting um, you mentioned that because I think, I wonder if, vendors almost did that intentionally shot in color because of the kind of odd tone of it because 
for we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but um, like you said, the other two films are both shot in black and white. So I'm sure the first one was partially just for cost reasons. But when for Kings of the Road, he says he shot it in black and white because he thought that was apparently in quotes much more realistic and natural than color. So I wonder if he just has this point of view of black and white being more true to life than color because his other films that are shot in black and white are more like that. So I wonder if he almost shot this in color make it seem less natural intentionally. I was thinking about it, you know, the characters in this movie are all obsessed with dreams to a point that I I found a little bit annoying, but I think that's, again, the intent. But they're talking, they all talk about their dreams that they had and not like dreams of like, I dream of being a doctor one day, but like the dream they had last night, no matter how mundane. And the poetry guy, of course, can't remember his dream and then gets all excited when he finally does and he has to tell everybody. But I was wondering, you know, maybe this is supposed to feel a little bit dreamlike and have a little bit of dream logic to it where people are sort of drifting in and out of the periphery and not everything necessarily gels or makes sense. And it doesn't feel as emotionally deep, even though things that are said or things that are discussed should provoke some sort of emotion so maybe the the color adds to that right that it, it kind of adds that layer of artificiality it is kind of an interesting use of color that i haven't seen before so i do kind of like that kind of different uh, point of view of the color scheme i think it was in this movie that there was a, a quote from the character played by Vogler, where he says how can you be a writer if you don't like people uh. and that made me laugh because i think a lot of writers are a bit anti-human like they don't necessarily love being social so i thought that was a funny statement because again i don't think that's a, a prerequisite for writing but i think you do have to understand certain fundamental things about human nature to be a writer and if this character wants to be a writer he's got a long way to go because he doesn't seem to have a great grasp on even how he feels about himself let alone other people he's a bit misanthropic yeah, and he does, well, like he says, like, basically, I think one of the last things he says in the movie is that he just keeps making the wrong move in, in yeah. life, so he doesn't really know, I think, where to go, how to do it, or anything. He is, I mean, he's kind of, uh, he's lost in the film, and I think intentionally, I think I was reading, intentionally, they made sure that he was actually worse off by the end of the film than he was at the beginning. So um, it is kind of a, not redemption story, it's whatever the opposite of that is. So it's, yeah. he's, the he's... the hero's so that so was that's why it doesn't feel super satisfying as a movie but yeah it may it may not be everybody's cup of tea i think that's uh definitely it does yeah it does seem to be the black sheep of this trilogy and the one that people like the least so it seems to be kind of a good divide of kind of my side of it and your side of it of people who rather love it or kind of hate it so yeah i think if people watch this one uh, just be prepared it might be the one you like the least but it might also be the one you know you really really love yeah, I wasn't, like, crazy about it. I, I would say for me it was just, like, average. I could see kind of what they were going for, but I would say I connected to it the least out of Oh, okay. Okay, well, then you might be in the case of other people. I know that some people do love the film. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, I hate it, and she and Rosalie think it's okay. But um, <laughs> you can make your own judgments about it. Trailers for sale are rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes 
red Sabbath, two hours of pushing from buys and eight, twelve, four bedroom. I'm a man of means, by no means, king of the road. Okay, so the last film we're going to talk about is called Kings of the Road. Um, it was released the very next year in 1976. Again, stars Vogler as a uh, man named Bruno Venter. Um, he's a film projector repairman um, who takes in a depressed, suicidal man called Robert, who's played by Hans Zisler. Again, apologies for my horrible German pronunciation. The two uh, travel along uh, the West and East German border where the, fi- where the movie was uh, also filmed as Bruno uh, makes various job-related stops at uh, various small-town theaters. They both carry their own personal and emotional baggage. Robert is still thinking about his wife, who he recently broke up with, and he also uh, resents his father for how he re- how he treated his now-deceased mother. And then uh, Bruno is more stable, but he there is a kind of more subtle um, aspect of he doesn't really live his life, he just kind of travels from town to town alone, and he's just kind of, I think he's more just kind of surviving more than anything else. And uh, the two meet, you know, some people along the way, like a uh, depressed man whose wife just committed suicide, and Bruno also tries to go on a date with a movie theater ticket lady who he fancies. So uh, I like this one much more, much, 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 much more than <laughs> Wrong Move. From the very beginning, one thing I really, really love that really got me into the movie, I mean, before I even started the movie, technically, because it's in, they use use it for the main menu for the DVD, is the music, which it's a very kind of 60s soundtrack with this kind of psychedelic music and also this kind of countryish music and rock and roll. And it's just a wonderful soundtrack that you might not think would suit, I mean, not necessarily suit a road movie, but maybe not a ger- Germanic ro- road movie. Um, but it suits it and the subject and the scenes of it very very well and I just fell in love with certain moments um, of it especially some of the psychedelic music that happens in it yeah the music really stood out to me too in this one more so than the other two even the instrumental stuff I absolutely loved and I could see myself putting that on if I had it on a vinyl record I would totally just listen to that and go about my day but I also liked the choice of songs obviously Roger Miller's King of the Road is on the soundtrack as you might guess from the title of this movie but there's also uh just like eddie which is a great song and the more i see you and yeah i just enjoyed you know the fact that there's some diegetic music in there as well which we kind of hear on the the record player that he has in the car and then the stuff that the scores the movie really adds to the charm and adds to the feeling you get of being on the road with these characters yeah, and immediately it's a much more optimistic tone. It's more, it's more, uh, not, it's more serious or more of a dramatic tone than something like Alice in the Cities. But it does have more of an optimistic tone about people and the world than uh, Wrong Move does. So I mean, that was nice because going into it, I was worried that it was going to be that Alice in the Cities was going to be the odd one out, and I was going to have a three-hour film version of wrong move which was worrying um but my <laughs> wife was too because she was watching all these with me and i was like well and she was like well it can't be really worse than wrong move and then it's like well it could be wrong move but three hours long so which we were not and oh by the way this is three hours long is by far the longest of these three films the first one i think is just under two hours 
The second one, I think, is like an hour and 44, and this one is just under three hours long. So it is a long haul. I think it is a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, I think the first two hours and 15 minutes is fine. I think the last 45 minutes kind of drags a bit. I don't really know what you could cut out of the movie, but yeah, the last 45 minutes, I was kind of hoping it would wrap things up. Yeah, um, I disagree with Roger Ebert, who said that this movie and its three-hour runtime was not a minute too long. I think they definitely could have lost. In particular, I would have been fine without the scenes of Bruno and his dad. Just felt a little superfluous and took us out of the story that is just these two guys on the road going from theater to theater. Because I love that premise, right? You don't Mm -hmm. really need a lot of plot. It's just kind of these little capers that they have and some of them are funny and some of them are more serious and they have interesting conversations along the way or sometimes they don't talk and even that is interesting because they're just you know unique dudes to look at and you get to see the countryside and and so on and they have interesting encounters with other characters so I would have been fine without the family drama that seeps into it but other than that I mean I really enjoyed this movie a lot I think it's a definite uplift in mood like you said and super super enjoyable it didn't feel three hours long even though i still think it could have been a bit shorter and not lost anything i mean i slightly disagree about the dad thing because i think i mean i guess you could say you could just have it be about his drama is mainly about his ex his or soon to be ex-wife the wife he's you know the person he's broken up with it could just be about that and him trying to heal from that and maybe doesn't need an extra healing story but i do know i mean just in terms of editing i know if you got rid of that entirely and didn't like rewrite the script and then or oh i shouldn't say rewrite the script because apparently most of this is pretty improvised on the spot or by you know on the day because there is a certain change in tone he does uh, in terms of uh, robert's character after he meets his dad he does seem a bit more healed and more happy with himself not entirely maybe to a health healthy mental emotional point but he is better, a little bit better after that. So I think totally cutting that out after it was filmed would be maybe a bit of a, uh, you wouldn't understand why his character is having such a tonal shift. But uh, like I said, you just want more of it to be kind of like his driving force of drama is his ex-wife and that kind of baggage he's carrying. Yeah, and I mean, to some degree, I, I do agree with you. Like, it would be weird if he just shifted from this depressed guy to feeling better and kind of wanting to go on with his life. But I just felt like that part of it took us out of the movie as it was for a little while. Maybe just shortened it. I don't know. Um, it felt like it went on for longer than it needed to, for sure, in my opinion. Yeah, it did. Because uh, while they intercut that with this sort of date that Bruno is going on with this woman at uh, this porno theater. And every time they cut back to Robert, I was kind of like, he's still there. He's still there. Yeah. And I kind of didn't want him. I was kind of more interested in what Bruno was doing with this woman than I was with... Robert, not that I didn't like Robert as a character, and I didn't necessarily mind the, his story with his dad, but it was kind of, maybe it was just because at that time the the Bruno woman story was better and more interesting than the Robert father story. So, and again, it's the fact that he kept cutting back, and then, you know, most of it is just the dad sleep, the, just the dad sleeping, and Robert doing, well, we find out what he's doing later, but all throughout the night, but maybe less of that would have, yeah, would have been nice. I just feel like, you know, father-son reunions are things we've seen on screen before, but everything else in this movie felt really fresh and new to me. So that was the only element that I was like, well, I mean, do we need it? Because we've seen this kind of thing before. The rest of it, though, I thought was fantastic. And I do want to kind of talk a little bit about some of the different theaters that they go to. My favorite one by far is when they go to the theater 
where there's a bunch of kids in the audience. Yeah. Projector is broken and the speaker's broken, and so they end up accidentally being pulled into becoming a puppet show slash shadow play show for the kids who are watching them through the screen, and they, you know, they fully live up to that. They just seize the moment and do a, fun, a bunch of hilarious slapstick sequences for the kids, and it's really funny and really cute, and it's a sweet and funny moment in a movie that has some more serious stuff in it too. Like you mentioned the guy whose wife drove her car into a tree. So I mentioned in Alice in the Cities, you know, that he plays that little game of hangman with Alice. And then in Wrong Man, we see, you know, suicide as a theme. In this one, we see suicide as a theme, at least somewhat. So it was nice to have some lightness to balance that out, I felt. Yeah, I really like that sequence too. It is not... Uh, revolutionary in terms of physical comedy but it still really kind of works and it's just kind of it is sweet and just uh, uh, enduring for those it happens early in the film so it really kind of cements I think your love for those two characters who are kind of broken but still can have a bit of fun too so yeah I liked how that moment tells us that this is a movie where it's totally fine to laugh and also that these two guys even though they don't have any obligation to each other are going to work together and are going to partner in those sorts of moments when things like that come up and I think that that's the underlying you know sweetness of this movie is these two guys that just happen to come into each other's lives at a an odd time and you know they just hang out together and kind of get to know each other and maybe help each other through a, a tough time so one of them literally crashes onto the scene of the other <laughs> when he crashes his car into a, a river or a lake or something um <laughs> which provokes laughter from bruno but then he realizes okay this guy is kind of a emotionally fraught man and, and maybe he needs a little more saving so anyway it's just a it's a nice little illustration early in the movie of the kind of people these guys are yeah and i mean and it is kind of funny in a kind of dark way the the the, the guy uh, robert's car crashing into the river or pond or whatever it is because as my wife pointed out it's like he can't even commit suicide successfully because the darn car won't won't sink so <laughs> Yeah, there does seem to be a love for cinema in this film, and a kind of where where are films going to go from this viewpoint of 1976 or 1975, I think, from when they filmed it. And I think most of the, or maybe all of them, are supposed to be the theaters that Bruno is doing work at. I think at least all the ones we see films at are all seem to be porno theaters, and it does seem to be a comment on the downfall of this art we call cinema. I mean, there's optimism of where it could go, especially near the end of the film, there's this speech that um, I think also, I think a former Nazi is making about how there always will be, you know, a theater in some of these towns and blah, blah, blah. But there's also seems to be this bit of pessimism of this dark place and this kind of uncultured kind of dumb or dumbed down place that movies are heading towards. Um, How did you feel about that kind of uh, discussion? Well, it's interesting because this was made in 76 and it's a discussion that we're still having now. I mean, just think back to last year with Marvel versus Martin Scorsese. We constantly, as film fans, have this debate of what qualifies as cinema and what is is cinema dead? Are theaters going away? And I think especially in light of what's going on in the world right now, we've had to change the way that we view movies, at least temporarily. And there's certainly some debate about how that's going to impact the future of the way movies are distributed and and displayed to the public. So I think we continue to have this ongoing discussion. And it was very interesting to see it in the context of of this movie where they were dealing with a different kind of fallout, right? Because they had been through 
World War II, where probably a lot of these theaters either had to shut down, as was implied by one of the theater owners, or, you know, maybe they were forced to play like Nazi propaganda. We don't really know. So they're starting to make a comeback. But maybe the only movies that are making money at that point for them are these exploitation films, are these porno movies, are these, you know, things that are not what they would consider to be cinema or high art. And it's not why they got into the movie business. And a lot of them are carrying on you know, theaters that their parents or grandparents owned, and they're just sort of basically maintaining them because they feel like it's their familial obligation, but their heart's not really in it anymore. So I'd be curious to know more. I feel like I need to educate myself more about just the history of theaters and, and small theaters in particular in Germany during that time period, because, you know, how many of these movies houses did survive that era and, and made it through. And even in the U.S., you know, how many local art houses are there left? How many local theaters that are not chains are there left? Not that many. So it's it's definitely, I think, an ongoing struggle of the, the art versus the entertainment and how you make money in that. There seems to be also, to get even more like literal about this movie, the character of Bruno seems to be frustrated because he runs into a lot of projectionists or theater owners that don't know or care about the equipment and you know, Bruno is still sort of in wonderment about how the various pieces of projectionist equipment are the reason that movies exist in the first place, because they can move that film at 24 frames a second. And, you know, he gives a nice little speech about it to one of the projectionists that doesn't seem to give two craps about his job. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think there's, again, echoes of that still with people that are, you know, really attached to film versus digital and, you know, I, there's a little bit of gatekeeping that sometimes makes me uncomfortable with people that are such purists that, you know, yeah. you see it on 35 millimeter, it doesn't count and blah, blah, blah. I'm all for, you know, everybody should have access to whatever they can in whatever way they can. But I also think that there is a loss of appreciation for just the art form of properly displaying movies. And, you know, it, it does it mean less that you can watch it on your cell phone when back in the day you might have had to like actually make an effort and go see it quote unquote the way it was intended on the big screen so I, I think we'll continue to have those discussions about the right way to watch movies and what movies really mean and what role they play in our lives but I think that's one of the secret joys of movies right is that it provokes these kind of debates yeah and because there's always I think this kind of this clash of not just with film, but probably other art mediums too, of this kind of clash between the art form and the business side of it. And I know uh, there was something I heard um, Patton Oswalt say once where he was talking about uh, another big cinephile. He was talking about uh, stand-up comedy, specifically about how a lot of people in, oh, I think it might have been maybe during the stand-up boom of maybe the 80s or 90s or whatever of uh, a certain stand-up boom where a lot of people were starting to open stand-up clubs or have stand-up you know open mic nights or whatever because that was what was popular and bringing in money in other places but there were by people that were doing it were people who didn't really care about stand-up or care about comedy so it didn't really work because they didn't really they were trying to just do it to make money and as a business proposition and i think yeah, a lot of people today in movies, they're doing it, or people who work in a movie theater or whatever, they're doing it more just to pay the bills or as a job or just to, whether they're making the popcorn or they're managing the theater or they own the theater uh, or they manage the theater of a chain, more so to speak, they're doing it more as, I think, a business. Some of them are doing it more as a business thing than other ones are showing more appreciation to it. And I think 
Um, you can kind of see that in this film where the people that Bruno, who cares about is really cares about the art form and what he's doing, has better kind of results um, than the people who are just kind of doing it as a whatever thing. And it's something that, I mean, you have people, you know, talk about uh, Alice in the Cities is, again, Philip being kind of pessimistic about American television. You know, you have American television today, which a lot of it, you know, chops up movies and it's commercializing them and not properly showing them. Um, But then you have stuff like TCM or whatever, or DVD companies like Criterion or Kino or whatever that are trying to properly show love for these films and the history of these films and the positive nature of them. And yeah, it is kind of a clash that I think this film gets across pretty well in its own kind of subtle way. It doesn't, it's not hitting you over the head with it, but it is kind of subtly talking about, I think, that business versus art dynamic. Yeah, it's interesting. Just yesterday, I read this interview that IndieWire did recently with Shane Carruth, who's a filmmaker whose two movies are amazing. And I'm worried that we may never get to see another one. In fact, even by his own admission, he's kind of over the whole business. But he gave this interview where she gets extremely candid and talks about why he wants to quit Hollywood. And he said, you know, we hire models to say words they don't even understand, and then we like them well. Only 1% of it is worth watching. And we get to go to the same building to watch a fucking Garfield cartoon and Phantom Thread as if those two are the same thing. So (laughs) I thought that that quote really summed up kind of the conflict that is at the heart of this movie as well of like, these people that are like, well, you know, I wish I could show tr- like real true cinema, but I'm I'm stuck showing like, you know, nudie movies to people that are jerking off in the audience. Yeah. But there is, like you said, there's kind of this gatekeeping of it, too. It can be kind of, well, I understand what that director is saying. There can also be this kind of, you know, pretentiousness about it, too, where it's like, well, yes, I'm not saying the Garfield movie is high quality. Uh, movie making, a movie like that but done well is fine and doesn't all have to be arty, fartsy stuff like, not to just Phantom Thread, but it doesn't all have to be like that. I think sometimes people we think that you know every movie needs to be like Phantom Thread or Schindler's List or something when something like Indiana Jones is perfectly fine and is cinema too, but I could watch Fast and Furious movies all day long, but I also subscribe to the Criterion channel, so I think there's room for both yeah. pop entertainment and you know, quote unquote serious cinema. So what do you think about this trilogy as a whole? Again, it's kind of a loose trilogy, maybe a trilogy, trilogy of themes, and obviously the kind of road motif of it is, you know, a common thread of them. Uh, but what did you think of these as a whole and as of kind of watching these as a kind of a series of films? I really enjoyed seeing them one after another. And I had, I have to confess to my great shame, I had never seen a Vin Benders movie before, so now I need to absolutely hurry up and watch Pure Texas and Wings my of mouth Texas. is agape I know I am ashamed it is uh, terrible but at least I've started down the road now so no pun intended <laughs> um, yeah so I mean it's interesting because I guess vendors himself did not intend these to be a trilogy initially they just sort of happened and then critics kind of saw them as connected to one another and so it's it's been dubbed the road trilogy they definitely have things in common. And I think, you know, I was reminded of Fellini and the number of movies that he made with Marcello Mastriani where, you know, they just work so well together that when you have that director actor pairing, you can sell, you know, all sorts of different things. But I think it's super interesting that he went back to the well of a road trip movie with the same actor so many times. And I, I really did like seeing kind of the different phases of, 
Vogler and how between like the different movies he ages, he has slightly different haircuts, whatever, but his characters are so vastly different. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, he's at his absolute most heroic and sympathetic in Alice and his least likable, certainly in wrong move. But each of the movies portrays a very different kind of person. And yet we still get to see the same guy playing them. So that was really interesting. And then just in terms of the themes that they explored, I've always thought that there's something about being trapped in either a car or a plane or, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, but being trapped in a vehicle with somebody else, it forces a sort of honesty and intimacy that you don't necessarily get if you're just sitting in the same room with them. And I, I think that that really lends itself to relationships forming that might not otherwise form between characters that have very little in common. So I think that was another really, really great thing about this trilogy is that we see those kind of miniature relationships that, that deepen over time. And then finally, I think just seeing the different parts of the, sorry for the sirens, just seeing different parts of the, (laughs) the countryside, whether it's, in Germany or very briefly in America, that was a really also a unique aspect that I enjoyed. So yeah, I, I found it very satisfying and I'm definitely going to pick it up during the next Criterion sale. I overall like this. I will probably never watch Wrong Move again, but I, you know, loved Alice in the Cities, Kings of the Road, a bit long in the tooth, but still very enjoyable and with a great, great soundtrack. And, you know, it does make me want to watch more of Vin Vendor's movies. I shouldn't necessarily chastise you for um, not seeing his films because I had seen, I had not realized, I was aware of more of his films than I was aware, than I thought I was, and I had seen... Uh, I had seen Wings of Desire. I saw that in, back in college, and I picked that up during one of the Criterion sales. And I had heard of Paris, Texas, and um, I actually have... He has done quite a few documentaries over the years. I think probably more documentaries than he's actually done fictional feature films, one of which is the Buena Vista uh, Social Club, which I, for purely coincidental, also have, and I didn't realize he made that either. So um, I'm certainly interested in checking out more of his stuff and more of his point of view and the way he uses the camera and just his... Kind of like Philip in Alice in the Cities, he has this kind of unique way of photographing stuff, which I find very appealing. So interested to see more of that, and I'm interested to what we can hopefully discuss. Um, I've been wanting to, we'll have to find a time to do it, uh, just get to discuss Wings of Desire, because I think that's a very interesting film that deserves to be talked more about. All right, so as of this recording, Criterion has told us what their August releases are going to be. And what are you most looking forward to? Oddly enough, this is the first one where I don't have a strong feeling because it's five, uh, I think mainly five titles. Uh, the Lost in Honor of uh, Katharina Blum, The Complete Films of Agnes Varda, Town, Bloody Hall, The Comfort of Strangers, and Tony, I think, or Tani. I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce that. I know, I will say, I guess the one I would be most looking forward to is the Agnes Varda Complete Films, which I'm sure is going to be mega expensive, but you know, I we talk we've talked about her film Vagabond on this, so um, I might pick that up just to get more of a point of view on her career and not just the feature films that she's done, but the documentaries she's done as well. This might be a good time to kind of finally dive into those. But what about um, you? What is kind of all these five titles? Was piqued your fancy? Well, Agnes is definitely on my list, and um, of course, this always happens. But my boyfriend tracked down a ton of out-of-print Agnes Varda stuff for me as a Christmas <laughs> present this year, and <laughs> now this is coming out. So 
He probably could have spent the same amount of money and gotten this, but I'm, I'm glad I got those movies early on. But I'm super excited for that. And I'm also very curious about uh, Paul Schrader's The Comfort of Strangers. I have not watched this movie, but, you know, you've got a screenplay from Ian McEwan and you've got a great cast with Rupert Everett and Natasha Richardson, Christopher Walken, Helen Mirren. And then, of course, I mean, Paul Schrader's a great director, a great writer. So um, I'm super curious about it. And I don't know too much about the story, but, you know, the cast and the director are enough to sell me on it. Okay, so that about wraps us up for today. So uh, for next month, again, we're going to, for June, we're hoping um, to talk about some LGBT cinema. Um, We'll see how that goes. Again, that might have to be pushed back um, to uh, an unforeseen or an unknowable month. We'll see how that goes. We'll definitely let you know. Um, come the next podcast, obviously. Um, but um, if it is not um, LGBT uh, cinema, what we will talk about is probably documentary, um, some Criterion documentary films. Um, we haven't narrowed down what films we're going to talk about. Um, Criterion has quite a few documentaries um, that it has highlighted over the years. After that, we may insert a different topic for July that we haven't really planned for. But um, I know for August and September, Unless, again, we move that around a bit. We will be talking about the Coker trilogy for August and the um, Andre, Gregory, and Wallace Shawn three-film collection in September. Again, those might move around a bit, but as of right now, I think that's where they are. But until then, you can find me on Twitter at CinemaPackRats, and you can also find... Uh, check out my uh, blog on WordPress or my YouTube account. And you can also check out 25yearslatersite.com or its Twitter account at 25ylsite. And you can find me on Twitter at Rosalie Lewis and you can read my film-related writing and occasionally see me on Zoom videos on fthismovie.net. And until next time, we will catch you all later. (laughs) 